you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 20 of Reclaiming the Faith a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you for praying for me and for my family and for my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall. Well, here in episode 20, I'm going to be getting back into my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. And as with chapters one through four, I'll be giving you an audio version of chapter five, which is called Judas and Jesus. This is a chapter about God's sovereignty and mankind's free will. And here in chapter five, I'll discuss how if it was prophesied that Judas would betray Jesus, did he really have a shot at having faith in Jesus and receiving eternal life? And if not, what would that say about God who supposedly so loves the world? Well, you will discover that the early Christians' view on the issues of God's sovereignty and mankind's free will are neither Calvinistic nor Arminian, yet they are absolutely biblical. Well, you can find this book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, on Amazon. And if it's a blessing to you, please leave me an honest review there. And similarly, if you're blessed by this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com. Or you can email me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Falls' Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. In addition to our own channels, you can find each of our podcasts at the Fourth Watch Radio website or on the Fourth Watch Radio podcast. And finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And you can purchase your copy for only $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. All right, let's get episode 20 rolling. Chapter 5, Judas and Jesus. Imagine one day... An 11-year-old quadriplegic boy and his father came home from the store with $120 worth of groceries. As the dad lifted his boy out of the car, he turned to his son and said, Son, I love you, and I've got confidence in you. I'm going inside to wash up, so have all the groceries inside by the time I come out of the restroom. If you obey me, You can have two scoops of ice cream after dinner. But if you disobey me, well, just remember what happened the last time you disobeyed me. Okay, buddy? Now the child, 
not wanting to disobey his father, drove his own smaller motorized vehicle around to the back of the car to begin what seemed like the impossible. He leaned his head over into the trunk to take hold of the bag containing the milk, gripping the hands with his teeth. Unfortunately, as he slowly pulled the milk toward him, it toppled to the ground, spilling everywhere. At that moment, his father burst out of the back door to see the sea of milk covering the driveway. The boy cried and apologized, but to no avail. The enraged father grabbed his paralyzed son and proceeded to beat and berate the boy. Now, I realize this hypothetical situation is extreme. It almost sounds like a modern form of slavery. An incredibly cruel master toys with a young slave by promising rewards if certain tasks are performed, but then manipulates those scenarios so failure is always ensured. But what about Judas? Was he a slave? In the biblical accounts, he appears to be living with the same opportunities to enter the kingdom of God as the other disciples, but was that really the case? Did he ever have a chance at redemption? It had been prophesied hundreds of years before Judas's lifetime that someone close to the Messiah would betray the innocent anointed one, do it for 30 pieces of silver, and that money would be used to buy a potter's field. So, did Judas ever have a chance at eternal life? Did he have the ability to choose to love and follow Jesus? Or was he set up and forced, like a slave, to become the Messiah's betrayer? And what do those answers say about God? Before going any further, I must admit that many people much more intelligent and educated than me have written lengthy books on the issues of God's sovereignty and mankind's free will. So, as I give my thoughts on those weighty matters in one chapter, please know that we are merely dipping our toes into the ocean. Also, I'd like you to consider how you formed your beliefs on this matter. Did they come from reading the scriptures, your pastor's teachings, your parents' convictions, or a professor's instructions? In some of my undergraduate classes in my Christianity major, I was basically taught to understand the issues of sovereignty and free will first through the lens of John Calvin's beliefs, and then through certain words of the Apostle Paul that corresponded with Calvin's teachings, and then the other scriptures. Now, I must say that I am thankful for the education I received, and I wouldn't be here today if not for the good seed that was sown into me while in college. However, looking back, I can see the filter through which I was being taught to understand the scriptures. So, what I would like you to do now is prayerfully to put your preconceptions of these topics aside. And instead of beginning with 16th century writings, we will again play the game of telephone. 
we will look at several scriptures and early Christian quotes that deal with the topic of God's sovereignty. Then, we will do the same with the subject of mankind's free will. And after examining all these weighty words, we will be able to give a sound reply to the questions concerning Judas. So are you ready? We will begin with what the scripture says about God's sovereignty. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6-10. through 10. It says, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail, and those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. This is from Psalm 103, verses 17 to 19. It says, The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Now, Isaiah 46, verse 9 through 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now moving to the New Testament, this is Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 through 30, Paul writes, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul again here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 through 15. I charge you, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And now Peter is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-2. through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 
May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. All right, now let's look at some testimony from the early church on God's sovereignty. Starting with Ignatius in 105 CE, he writes, To her who has found mercy in the greatness of the all-highest Father and Jesus Christ, his only Son, to the church beloved and enlightened in her love to our God Jesus Christ by the will of him who wills all things. Now Irenaeus in 180. They were convinced that they should call the maker of this universe the Father, for he exercises a providence over all things and arranges the affairs of our world. Now Clement of Alexandria in 195 AD, he writes, Nothing happens without the will of the Lord of the universe. It remains to say that such things happen without the prevention of God, for this alone saves both the providence and the goodness of God. We must not therefore think that he actively produces afflictions. Rather, we must be persuaded that he does not prevent those beings who cause them. Yet, he overrules for good the crimes of his enemies. Now, Origen in 248. Kings are not appointed by the son of Saturn, but by God, who governs all things and who wisely arranges whatever belongs to the appointment of kings. And now Cyprian in 250. He writes, And allow us to not be led into temptation. In these words, it is shown that the adversary can do nothing against us unless God has first permitted it. So, all of our fear, devotion, and obedience should be turned toward God. For in our temptations, nothing is permitted to do evil unless power is given him from God. Now, from these scriptures and commentaries by the early Christians, we see that God is absolutely sovereign and the ultimate ruler of all. He created all things and reigns over all things. Nothing happens that he is not aware of, that he does not allow, or that he will not use to accomplish his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And because he exists outside of time, he is able to see and know everyone who will eventually end up with him in the new heavens and new earth, and who will burn in the lake of fire. But what does that say, what does scripture say, about our free will as it relates to God's sovereignty? Let's start back in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. So, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, 
Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14 and 19 through 20. For this commandment which I give you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and to make us hear it, that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and to make us hear it, that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. Now in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 2 and 15. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. Now Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 Verse 37, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Now in Mark chapter 10, Verses 17 through 22, he writes, As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Again, Jesus in Luke chapter 7, 
verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Okay, so here is some testimony from the early church about mankind's free will. Starting with Ignatius in 105 AD. When you are desirous to do well, God is also ready to assist you. Now, Justin Martyr in 160. We have learned from the prophets, and we hold it to be true that punishments, chastisements, and good rewards are rendered according to the merit of each man's actions. Now, if this is not so, but all things happen by fate, then neither is anything at all in our power. For if it is predetermined that this man will be good and that this other man will be evil, neither is the first one meritorious nor the latter man to be blamed. And again, unless the human race has the power of avoiding evil and choosing good by free choice, they are not accountable for their actions. So, we maintain that each man acts rightly or sins by his free choice. Now, Irenaeus in 180. But man, being endowed with reason, and in this respect similar to God, having been made free in his will and with power over himself, is himself his own cause that sometimes he becomes wheat and sometimes chaff. Now Hippolytus in 225, he writes, Christ passed through every stage in life in order that he himself could serve as a law for persons of every age and that by being present among us, he could demonstrate his own manhood as a model for all men. Furthermore, through himself, he could prove that God made nothing evil and that man possesses the capacity of self-determination. For man is able both will and to not will. He is endowed with the power to do both. Now, Origen in 225 writes, Since we consider God to be both good and just, let us see how the good and just God could harden the heart of Pharaoh. If the sun had a voice, it might say, I both liquefy and dry up. Although liquefying and drying are opposite things, the sun would not speak falsely on this point. For wax is melted and mud is dried by the same heat. In the same way, the operation performed through the instrumentality of Moses, on the one hand, hardened Pharaoh because of his own wickedness, and it softened the mixed Egyptian multitude who departed with the Hebrews. 
and now Methodius in 290. I do not think that God urges man to obey his commandments, but then deprives him of the power to obey or disobey. He does not give a command in order to take away the power that he has given. Rather, he gives it in order to bestow a better gift in return for having rendered obedience to God. I say that man was made with free will. These scriptures and commentaries reveal that God, in his sovereignty, has given all mankind the free will to accept or reject him by his grace through faith. He does not dole out rewards or punishments if the recipients are incapable of completing the prescribed tasks. Therefore, he does not arbitrarily select some people for salvation and some for damnation. But, based on his foreknowledge of those who will choose to receive him, he sets in motion a process by which they are conformed to the image of his Son. However, as with Jesus and the rich young ruler in Mark 10, God still compassionately reaches out to those who will reject him, showing that his grace is resistible. The story of the rich young ruler also demonstrates the truth of Ezekiel 33, 12-13, that, though unregenerate people are capable of doing good things, those good things cannot save them. Jesus affirmed the rich young ruler in that he had kept many of God's commands, yet he failed in at least one area, which put him in dire need of a Savior. And we know from James 2 verse 10 that even if we stumble in keeping one point of the law, we are guilty of violating it all. And Jesus tells us that the whole law is summed up in the commandment that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Therefore, it is quite easy to understand why Jesus told the man, no one is good except God alone. No one has ever loved their neighbors as themselves throughout their entire life. No one, that is, except Jesus. Now, Paul writes in Romans 6 that people who have not been born again are slaves to sin. However, the Bible clearly demonstrates that while disobedience is the norm for unregenerate people, God has given everyone the grace to do good things. So, what does it mean that we are slaves to sin? Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. Now the word translated enslaved is found two other times in Scripture. Romans 12, verse 11, and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7. Each time, Paul uses the word to mean rendering service to either God or people. And each time, he calls people to do this volitionally, without being forced by an outside or inside entity. Paul wrote in Titus 3 that humans were habitually and volitionally presenting themselves to their lusts and pleasures 
to render service to them. At the same time, as Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 11 reminds us, God's commands were neither too difficult for humans nor out of their reach. And in Romans chapter 6 verse 16, Paul writes, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were presented with a choice as to whose voice they would, they would obey. They chose to obey Satan. And when they did, they transferred their allegiance to him. Now, I will discuss this subject more in a later chapter, but for now, consider these scriptures. 1 John 8, verse 34 through 36, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 through 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And last, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So basically, We are born with natures that are corrupt, but not totally depraved. Once we knowingly sin, we become slaves of Satan's kingdom, and we need a Redeemer to save us by grace through faith. C.S. Lewis described this truth in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In the story, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy discovered a wardrobe that led them to a new world named Narnia. While there, Edmund met the evil white witch, who befriended him and offered him Turkish delight if he brought his siblings back to her. She also promised Edmund that if he accomplished this task, he would rule over his siblings. Edmund went back to his siblings, lied to them, manipulated them, but he did not succeed in convincing them to follow him. So, Edmund left them and went back to the White Witch. However, according to the rules of Narnia, all traitors belonged to the White Witch. He now became her slave. Eventually, the children met Aslan the Lion, the King of Narnia, 
and formed an army to fight the army of the White Witch. But before the battle, the witch went to Aslan's tent and reminded him of the rules. He couldn't just take Edmund back, for she had the right to execute every traitor. Aslan persuaded her to renounce her claim on Edmund's life by bargaining to exchange his life for Edmund's. Aslan was tortured that night and finally executed so Edmund could be set free. But in the morning, Aslan was resurrected. Now, this is a beautiful depiction of the gospel. We are all like Edmund, for when we sin, we choose Satan as our master, and nothing in our power can free us from his grasp. Only by the blood of Jesus can we be ransomed, redeemed, and born again into the kingdom of God. However, Edmund could disobey the witch even when he was in her custody. Also, even after Aslan did all that was necessary for Edmund's redemption, he didn't force Edmund to choose life. And by Jesus' work on the cross and through his resurrection, the doors of Satan's kingdom are now wide open for anyone on spiritual death row to go free. But they must choose to give their lives to Jesus by grace through faith in him. So, how does all this relate to our original questions concerning Judas? Perhaps the best way to answer is to consider Peter, the other disciple who failed Jesus on his last night. Toward the end of Peter's life, he wrote two letters that are preserved in the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7-9, through 9, he writes of the synergy of God's sovereignty and man's free will. He writes this, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And now consider the remarks of Clement of Alexandria, which also convey this synergy. A man by himself, working and toiling at freedom from passion, achieves nothing. But if he plainly shows himself very desirous and earnest about this, he attains it by the power of God. For God conspires with willing souls. But if they abandon their eagerness, the spirit who is bestowed by God is also restrained. For to save the unwilling is the part of one exercising compulsion. But to save the willing is that of one showing grace. So, how do these passages pertain to the life of Judas, as recorded in Scripture? 
Well, both Judas and Peter spent a lot of time with the best teacher who ever lived. Both received amazing insights about the scriptures. Both proclaimed the kingdom of God, cast out demons, and healed the sick. And both blew it at various times. Now, though Jesus had incredible patience with with each one, both Peter and Judas utterly failed the Lord on his last night on earth. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Judas, at some point out after his betrayal of Jesus, started to put some of the prophecy puzzle pieces together. Then, overwhelmed with a worldly sorrow, he again took matters into his own hands instead of trusting in the Lord. And the way that seemed right to him ended in death. He was unwilling to do the hard work that constituted full repentance and ended up hanging himself in the purchased field. Peter, however, did not take himself out of the game. Even when he was overwhelmed with depression and doubt and wanted to quit, he was willing to follow Jesus' voice. Now, there is one more passage we need to consider that seems to settle the matter against Judas having free will. In John chapter 6, verse 64 through 65 and verses 70 through 71, we read, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Well, that seems like a slam dunk, right? Look, Jesus knew who would betray him. He told the disciples one of them would betray him. He said no one can come to him unless God grants it. Bada-bing, bada-boom. Judas must not have free will, right? Well, the only problems are that, number one, the rest of Scripture testifies that humans have free will. And number two, all the early church writers of the first three centuries affirm humanity possessing free will. Now, consider these words on the subject in a defense of Christianity against the harsh criticisms of a Platonist named Celsus. Celsus imagines that an event predicted through foreknowledge comes to pass because it was predicted. But we do not grant this, maintaining that he who foretold it was not the cause of its happening because he foretold it would happen. But the future event itself, which would have taken place though not predicted, afforded the occasion to him who was endowed with the foreknowledge of foretelling its occurrence. And that this may be seen, I shall take from the scriptures the predictions regarding Judas, or the foreknowledge of our Savior regarding him as the traitor. Judas is spoken of by the mouth of the Savior. As it was foreknown that he would betray the Savior, so also 
was he considered to be himself the cause of the betrayal and deserving on account of his wickedness. It was possible for him to show mercy and to not persecute him whom he did persecute. But although he might have done these things, he did not do them, but carried out the act of treason so as to merit the curses pronounced against him in the prophecy. So, prophecy, God's sovereignty, and free will all work together when we consider God's foreknowledge. God could ask prophets hundreds of year before, years before Jesus' time to write that someone close to the Messiah would betray him, do it for 30 pieces of silver, use that money to buy, or buy a potter's field, and yet not force anyone to fulfill those prophecies simply because he exists outside of time and can see the end from the beginning. God is not a wicked slave master who toys with his slaves by offering them liberation while knowing they are incapable of achieving it. He does not delight in punishing them while when they fail with extreme tortures that would put our world's cruelest sadists to shame. God is love, and love can only thrive where there is the opportunity for it to either be chosen or rejected. Love requires free will. When my wife and I adopted our two beautiful African-American children, the last step was for the family to stand before a judge and be questioned. Our prospective son and daughter could not have made it through that step if we had not first drawn them to ourselves. By the time of the court hearing, they had lived in our house for six months and they were every bit a part of our family. However, at the courthouse that December morning, the judge gave them the opportunity to say they wanted to go back into foster care with a different family. We had already chosen them. And I'm so glad they chose us back. Mankind was created by God with free will. And the greatest commandment Judas was given is the same command all of us have been given. We must choose to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and choose to love our neighbors as ourselves. Like Jesus, we must choose to rely on God's power and choose his choices. Jesus graciously tried to the end to demonstrate God's love to Judas, to give him one last opportunity to see the truth before he committed his act of betrayal. On his last night on earth, the Lord of heaven and earth took the position of the lowest servant of the house and washed the dirty, grimy, filthy feet of the one plotting his arrest. The life of Judas shows a God who will go to incredible lengths of grace to demonstrate his love to even those he knows will betray and reject him. It shows that God loves and respects us so much 
that he will let us choose whether or not we will embrace by faith the life that he extends to each of us today. It reveals a God who loves us enough to give us both free will and all the grace we need to have the faith to choose to follow him. So, what has God been calling you to do lately? And what are you going to choose to do about that? As written in the epistle of Barnabas, may the Lord and God of all the world grant you wisdom, understanding, and knowledge together with true comprehension of his ordinances and the gift of perseverance. Take God for your teacher and study to learn what the Lord requires of you, and then do it, and you will find yourselves accepted at the day of judgment.
Just for you, oh, just for. 